If you've been with us in a, both a morning context and in an evening context, you would know that in the morning we, we tend to go through a New Testament passage. Right now Lance is going through Second Thessalonians, and in the evenings he has been going through the Psalms. It's been an encouraging study. Right now he's on Psalm 84. And the Psalms are, are helpful for us because really it is the only book that is written to God which is helpful for a number of reasons. It's Israel's song book, Israel's prayer book, and it's helpful for us because in certain times we are able to go to the Psalms and when we are unsure of how to pray, we can fill our mouths with the words of the Psalms. So in a similar vein, Shane this morning preached from Revelation 5 in the New Testament, and this evening what I'd like to do is kind of continue the trend and preach from an Old Testament passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is God giving to his people the Ten Commandments, a very important passage, a very sobering passage. Exodus chapter 20. Starting with verse one. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. 
For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This evening I'd like to attempt to make fresh what is often unfortunately seen as dull or dry, and that is the Ten Commandments. This evening specifically I'd like to go through the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not to say, I want to be careful with this, that the Ten Commandments in actuality are dry or dull. That's not the case, but unfortunately, our perception of the law, our perception of the Ten Commandments inclines itself there. So before we even, before we even touch the text, before we even get in, into the text, I'd like to put forward three statements in the negative that I hope will give us an understanding of not only the Ten Commandments, but of grace as well. Sometimes there is confusion over the law and grace, and I hope to provide three statements that will give clarity and also show that the law does function even today. It does have bearing on our lives. So as I said, I want to put forward three statements in the negative, and the first one is this. God's law is not devoid of grace. God's law is not devoid of grace. We must avoid thinking that because we are under a new covenant and we experience grace in ways that the saints of old didn't, that somehow the law is devoid of grace. On the contrary, the very gift of the Decalogue to God's people is an act of his grace. Decalogue is just another word for the Ten Commandments. It's derived from the the Greek Septuagint, Deca, and Lagos, which just means the ten words. The Decalogue was an act of grace from God, and it's an act of grace in this sense. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, just verse 1, those first three words in my Bible, and God spoke. And God spoke. This is a big deal. If you remember Later on, when we have the instance of Elijah and the god Baal, or Baal, as it's sometimes known, you have this rival of the gods, this battle of the gods, where they're trying to get the attention of Baal, and the worshipers of Baal are are yelling to Baal, they're trying to get his his attention, They, they even start to cut themselves to get his attention, but the text in 1 Kings chapter 18 is very clear, it says, there was no voice. There was no voice. But here, in Exodus 20, God spoke. If you think of the classic work from Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. That is this right here, Exodus 20. And then I want to note, this is a very unique situation. If you turn over to the previous chapter, Exodus 19, why don't you look at verse 9. This is Most interesting, verse nine, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God is not just speaking to Moses. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God speaks through his prophet. We're we're familiar maybe with the phrase, thus saith the Lord. So when the prophet speaks, God is also speaking, but this is different here. 
God is actually speaking to Israel. They are hearing his voice. Just think about that for a minute. That is profound. They are hearing the voice of God. The revelation of his requirements to his people is an act of his grace. Israel did not deserve any of this. They did not deserve it, yet God was clear and he was specific. God is not a God of confusion. He told them who he was and he told them what he required. So that first point in the negative, God's law is not devoid of grace. And the second is this, God's grace does not abrogate the law. God's grace does not abrogate the law. It does not nullify the law. It does not cancel the law. And this is an important thing to realize as we think about grace and law. Here I'm really speaking of of new covenant context. God's grace does not mean that we disregard the law and we continue to sin or think little of our sin. Romans 6 is very clear about that. Christ fulfilled the law. But make no mistake, he doesn't cancel the law, he does not abrogate the law, he doesn't nullify the law, he fulfills it, and even, my friends, he intensifies it at points. And you've heard maybe the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He intensifies it, he brings the law from the outer person and brings it into the inner heart. The law does indict us, it exposes us of our sin, but we are still under a law in a sense. It's a different law, but it's the law of Christ. This law compels us to obey because it changes our affections. So God's grace is not devoid of grace, or sorry, God's law is not devoid of grace, and then God's grace does not abrogate the law, and the final point in the negative is this, God's law is not anachronistic. God's law is not anachronistic. That's a big word, but it just basically means out of harmony in time. So when we we look at the Decalogue, another notion kind of similar to the the second point is that somehow the Decalogue is time-locked, that it's restricted to the Old Testament. The Decalogue, they would say, doesn't have bearing on our lives now because of its placement, because of its context, But let me show you why this thinking is actually faulty. Turn in your Bibles now briefly to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Paul is continuing his discussion about the weaker brother and the stronger brother. He's identifying himself with the strong brother in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now I'm at verse three. This is very interesting. He uses a passage from the Old Testament, from Psalm 69, as his basis, as his argument for his next point. For Christ did not please himself as it is written. And then here's the quote from Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now watch this, verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is why Paul can go to the Old Testament and use this verse, because it's used for our instruction. That's his point, that through endurance 
and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is basically saying this. Hope is realized when we not only read and understand, but when we obey the Decalogue, when we obey the things of the Old Testament. This is important. The Decalogue is not time-locked. So the three points, again, God's law is not devoid of grace. God's grace does not abrogate the law, and God's law is not anachronistic. So now that we have a basis for this, we can turn back to Exodus chapter 20, which will be our focused passage for this evening. This is part of the reason why I wanted to preach on the Decalogue, and specifically the first commandment, just to show that the Decalogue does actually have incredible bearing on our lives now. And what's interesting, as we will see, the first commandment really sets the tone for the rest of the commandments. So as we get back into our text, I have three points for you. And we're really only going to cover two verses, verse two of Exodus 20 and verse three of Exodus 20. But there is a lot here, and so we'll take our time. The three points are these. The first is revere God for what he's done. Revere God for what he has done. Notice verse two of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Really what we have here are two things. We have revelation and we have redemption. Revelation and redemption. First God tells Israel who he is. He says, I am the Lord. Before the Lord gives his people his law, he brings their attention back to himself. This is important, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth. This is the same I am, the same Lord, the same Yahweh that is revealed to Moses earlier in chapter 3. And I think we should turn there because this is important. We have to understand what is the significance of God starting this passage with his name. Why does he give his name first before he gets into his law? It's incredibly important, but we have to understand what his name means first. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is really in many ways the commission from God to Moses to go to Egypt to speak with Pharaoh and to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 3 And we'll start reading with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. His name, as Alec Matier would say, conceals as much as it reveals. Or if I were to quote him directly, conceals as much as it tells. But we can see here that his name, 
God's name is the focus. And the names here, I am and Yahweh, or the Lord, I believe are interchangeable, and I think I can prove this to you. If you look at verse 14 of Exodus chapter three, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But then notice verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It would also be helpful to note that both these words, I am and the Lord, or Yahweh, are derived from the same Hebrew word. So I believe they're interchangeable, but the question is, what is the meaning of God's name here? What is he trying to communicate to Moses, and what is the significance of God giving his name before the Decalogue, and how does it have bearing on our current study now, this evening? I believe his name conveys a couple different things, and one of them is that he is existent. I am. He is existent. And that may seem obvious, but many people live as though there is no God. So he's existent. He's infinite. He's uncreated, yet the creator. He's immutable, that is, he's unchanging. He's sovereign. He's sufficient. This is in part what his name means. And this is important. You can turn back to Exodus 20. This is important for the people of God because they need to understand what God's name means because knowing or understanding his name is important because the psalmist says in verse 9, or chapter 9, Verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is showing his people that he is trustworthy. They can trust him. And then notice also the second verse of Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord, your God. That's significant too because he's expressing a kind of covenant relationship with his people. I am the Lord, your God. God is reminding Israel of who he is to them. And that is also important. Then look at the next part of the verse. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now this is most interesting because a mere 50 days prior to God giving his law, Israel has just witnessed the great, mighty, and terrible deeds and works of the Lord's through, through the Ten Commandments. It's a terrible thing, and they, this is undoubtedly fresh in their minds. So why does God recapitulate this idea? Why does he remind them of their deliverance? And I think it's because of this reality. Israel cannot worship God properly unless they remember Egypt. Or in other words, They cannot thank God for his 10 words of life until they bow in deferent reverence, remembering his 10 plagues of death. They must remember that their redemption was a costly affair. The great I am delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. But notice this, in the New Testament, The great I am drew near to his people who were enslaved by their own sin. 
Notice this. The great I am delivered his people in the Old Testament from Egyptian bondage. But the same God, humbly clothed in human flesh, would also deliver his people from bondage, from the bondage of sin. Remember, in John chapter eight, Christ says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. Christ would come to deliver his people from bondage, a different bondage, but a bondage nonetheless, the bondage of sin. So the first point, revere God for what he has done. And the second is this, thank God for what he has given. Thank God for what he has given. We have acknowledged that Israel must remember God's 10 plagues of death before they can fully appreciate his 10 words of life. And it is important to further note that these words are in fact words of life and words of blessing. Oftentimes we may see God's commands as prohibitions from a God who isn't concerned about our good. But thankfully, Scripture corrects this faulty thinking. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. I think this will be helpful. I kind of want to note a couple different passages that express this reality. Life and good. Life and flourishing. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. That'll be our first Passage, and we'll kind of look at multiple, but Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do you see that there's... There's life involved here. There's flourishing involved here. Notice also in chapter four, verse 40. Verse 40 of Deuteronomy chapter four. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Again, flourishing, life, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you. Notice the, the encouragement, the exhortation is to obey God. We're seeing the commandments are for are good, the commandments are for Israel's good, therefore they're flourishing. You shall walk in all the ways the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, there it is again, life, and that it may go well with you, flourishing, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Notice in chapter six of Deuteronomy, verse 24, Verse 24 of chapter six. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Again, life and flourishing. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We read this before our service, a very helpful passage. This next passage is interesting because it's really a summary sermon, if you will, of the first commandment. 
It's very interesting. In essence, it's another way of expressing the first commandment, though in this case, it's stated in the positive, whereas the first commandment in Exodus 20 is stated in the negative. And in covenant language, we see five important verbs that give shape to the first commandment. Notice this, and notice the verbs. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To fear. This is reverential awe of Yahweh. To walk in all his ways. To imitate him. To love him. This is covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty to God. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is similar to the command to love But there's a bonded covenant language here because God has bought his people. He owns them. They then serve him with their will and with the seat of their affections. We keep reading. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is is cautious and conscientious. This is observing the commandments of the Lord being aware of how you walk with the Lord. Verse 13, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. There it is again, flourishing. Life and flourishing. We see the law is for their benefit. It's for their good. These are not prohibitions from a God who is indifferent. The lawgiver is pleased with covenant loyalty and the fidelity of his people. But notice The ones who keep his law are also benefited in the process. It is for their good. It is for their flourishing. It is for their life. Lastly, turn to Deuteronomy 30. This is towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And this final passage is a sort of summary of the whole book of Deuteronomy. It also would be helpful before we begin to read that These forms of obedience are not requirements to become God's people. That's an important note. God has chosen his people already. They are chosen. Obedience and adherence to the law are marks or fruits or results of becoming his children. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15 Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good. There it is again, life and flourishing. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. This is why the first commandment is so utterly important. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 18, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish if there is worship of these these other gods. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. 
Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. An important distinction should be made. God gives his people words of life But in following them, the law in and of itself is not the source of life, but the lawgiver is. The lawgiver is the source of life. Notice that in verse 20. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life. He is your life in length of days. Point three of our message this morning and turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Point three is this, pledge to God unadulterated allegiance. Pledge to God unadulterated allegiance. And this is when we come to verse three, really the focus of our message this evening, you shall have no other gods before me shall have no other gods before me. God has delivered his people from Egypt, but in delivering them from the land of Egypt, from the realm of Egypt, he's also taking them, he's also delivering them from the religion of Egypt. If you remember, Egypt was highly polytheistic. That is, they worshiped many gods. And the 10 plagues were not just a demonstration of God's power, they were actually aimed at the Egyptian gods. They were meant to, Yahweh was demonstrating, that is, that he is supreme. He is more powerful than, he's, than these fake gods, and he is doing this by eliminating and humiliating them. For example, the god Hapi, the Egyptian god Hapi, was the goddess, or the god, rather, of the Nile. And in a very graphic way, if you think about this, the Nile god, Hapi, bleeds out before its worshipers as the true God Yahweh turns the Nile River into blood. Heket was the the goddess of fertility. She was often depicted as a frog or with the head of a frog. And the Egyptians believed the frogs to be sacred so much so that they would not kill frogs. But Yahweh, amazingly so, demonstrates demonstrates his supremacy by killing frogs by the thousands. The Lord also proves himself sovereign as he sends the plague of darkness. This is a slight to the sun god, Ra. And then ultimately, Yahweh shows himself supreme and more powerful than any of the gods of Egypt by demonstrating that he is both the power of life and death with the final plague. And I want you to know that this is not me reading this into the text. This is not some sort of presupposition that I hold. I'm not forcing this onto the text. And I think I can prove that to you if you turn over just a a few chapters prior to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. The idea of reading something into the text is actually not helpful. It's called eisegesis where we have 
presuppositions and we force them onto the text of scripture, exegesis would be pulling the meaning, pulling the meaning from the text of scripture and that's what I believe we're doing this evening. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, this is God is about to send his plague of death to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, he says this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Notice this, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. There's his name again. The plagues, my friends, didn't just prove God's supremacy. It didn't just prove God's power over these, these false gods. It communicated something arguably more important. God, in essence, is saying this. These false gods, these gods of Egypt, they don't exist. They're not real. They're fake. They're counterfeit. Jen Wilkin, an incredible author and Bible study teacher, primarily for for women's studies, comments on this and she says, the first word or the first commandment is more than a prohibition against worshiping lesser gods. Notice this, it's an invitation into reality. The reality that there is only one God. You think of Isaiah 46, also 45, but Isaiah 46 verse nine, God says, I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me. Israel should pledge their unadulterated allegiance to Yahweh because frankly, my friends, this may seem very simple, but there is only one God. There is only one true God and there is none besides him. This first commandment is very important for Israel because God is calling Israel, like we said, out of a polytheistic nation and he's calling them to monotheism an exclusive worship of Yahweh, an exclusive worship of him alone. And he's calling them into monotheism only to prepare them to go back into polytheism. They're going to enter the land of Canaan, which is highly polytheistic. And God is very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. And unfortunately, we, we don't think that this is as serious as it actually is. Myself, using the term unadulterated allegiance may seem strange, it may seem odd, but it's actually very appropriate. For Israel to worship other gods and to attempt also to worship Yahweh is fundamentally spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. It would be something like this. It would be like committing adultery on your honeymoon. It's that bad, except for it's actually worse It's worse. We're sinners, but God, even as Shane read this morning from Revelation 4, God is holy, holy, holy. It's the Trisagion. It's worse than that. That's how bad this actually is. That's why the first commandment is so utterly important for Israel. They have to get this right, and it really does set the tone for the rest of the other commandments. However, it's also very important for us as well No other gods does not mean God first in priority. Now hear me out. No other gods does not mean first in priority because first in priority implies a hierarchy. 
We talked about polytheism, the worship of many gods. We talked about monotheism, the worship of one god. But there's actually one more classification, and it's right in between monotheism and polytheism. It's henotheism. Henotheism is the worship of one god, but amongst other gods. There's a hierarchy of gods. It's not God first in priority. It's God only and exclusively. That's the difference, my friends. And it's true of us today as well. We say we love Christ and worship him alone, but we're practical henotheists. We have a hierarchy of gods. Maybe the Lord is at the top of your list, but we still have other gods. Or maybe we're practical polytheists. We worship God along with other gods with no distinction. Either scenario is a breach of the first command. God in his grace, however, does expose these false gods that rob him of exclusive worship. For example, the loss of a job may show that we worship both financial security and worship Yahweh. He does that in his kindness to reveal those false gods. The apostate child may reveal a worship of having a perfect family and a worship to God. But these are false gods. And we would do well to follow in Jacob's steps. And I want to show you what I mean by this. Turn to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. Yahweh is about to call Jacob. He's calling him to Bethel. And he is to give him a new name. He's going to give him the name Israel. And God tells Jacob in verse 2 to put away the foreign gods that are among him and to purify himself. But notice this in verse four. This is highly applicable even for us. Verse four of Genesis chapter 35. So they gave to Jacob, they being his family, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them or buried them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This is an important illustration for us because oftentimes under the terebinth tree was a landmark for idol worship or even idol sacrifice. And Jacob really could have destroyed these idols in many different ways. He could have cut them up. He could have burned them but he buried them. A place that was used for idol worship and idol sacrifice has now become a burial ground. It's become a cemetery. He is is committing in his heart that these are in fact dead. These are false gods. And we would benefit to do the same, to bury these false gods in our lives. I'd like to conclude with an important reason why I believe unadulterated allegiance is so important, and it's this. God has betrothed us. God has betrothed us. Turn to Hosea chapter two. Hosea chapter two, this is a lot of love language in this book, a lot of gross sin in this book, but very helpful for us. Hosea chapter two. And I want you to note verse 19 and 20. 
Here we see God's steadfast love. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. We are his bride and he is the bridegroom. I want to read for you. I was reading this book earlier this week called The Promises of God by Charles Spurgeon. And he makes a comment on this passage from Hosea chapter 2. And I found it very encouraging and I just want to read it for you. He says this, Betrothed to the Lord, what an honor and a joy. My soul, is Jesus indeed yours by his own condescending betrothal? Then notice that it is forever. He will never break his engagement, much less sue for divorce against a soul joined to himself in marriage bonds. Three times the Lord says, I will betroth you. What words he heaps together to confirm the betrothal. Righteousness comes in to make the covenant legal. So none can forbid these lawful bans. Judgment sanctions the alliance with its decree. So none can see folly or error in the match. Steadfast love confirms that this is a love union. For without love, betrothal is bondage instead of blessing. Meanwhile, mercy smiles and even sings. Indeed, she multiplies herself into mercies because of the abounding grace of this holy union. Faithfulness is the registrar and records the marriage, and the Holy Spirit says amen to it as he promises to teach the betrothed heart all the holy knowledge needed for its high destiny. What a promise. What a promise. So, My friends, I have one question for you tonight, and it's this. Have you pledged unadulterated allegiance to the Lord, to the true God? Have you pledged unadulterated allegiance to him? I think think our response this evening, and we'll end a little bit early, but I think our response to this message could be even in a form of a song. Kimmy and Bruce are going to lead us in a final song called Take My Life and Let It Be. And I think it would be helpful. I have the lyrics in front of me here. Why don't you turn to hymn number 597? Hymn number 597. I want you to see this because this hymn is about comprehensive devotion to God. If there were a song that expresses unadulterated allegiance to God, this would be the song. I just want you to notice these verses. It's so comprehensive. He says, take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Every verse begins with take. He's giving to the Lord what is due to him. Life and time, hands and feet, voice and lips, silver and intellect, love and self, will and heart. This is unadulterated allegiance to God. 
Let's pray before we begin to sing. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to understand your commands and see that they are indeed words of life for us. We pray now that we would give to you a comprehensive devotion. Would we pledge to you our unadulterated allegiance, Lord, often... We say that we love you, but by our actions we show that we actually hate you. Lord, would it not be so? Would we honor you? Would we serve you? Would we fear you? Would we keep your commandments, Lord? You are holy and you are deserving of our praise and our devotion. So, Lord, we respond in song now. Amen.